first thing in the morning, as soon as you wake up, the to-do list starts. Does the car need gas? Hopefully those leftovers are still good. Why did I get CC'd on the mom? No. You can't escape the to-do list, but you can make the most of your me time with a relaxing shower using Method Hair Care products. Try Pure Peace Volumizing, Simply Nourish Moisturizing, or Daily Zen Shampoo and Conditioner for daily use. All formulated with long-lasting fragrances and are safe for color-treated hair. Reconnect with the best version of yourself. Visit methodproducts.com to unleash your inner shower. I'm Dawn Ennis. I'm Carly Chardonnay-Webb. And you're in the Transporter Room. Carly, we have a special guest joining us today, all the way from that planet Earth, Dr. Cherie Becker. And she joins us from England, from the UK. I'm very excited to talk to her about some research that you've been talking to her about. And also, we've got some extra Star Trek content today. I got off the phone just the other day with Mary Wiseman, Tilly, or as she's currently portraying the character, Killy in Star Trek Discovery. And when I tell you, this was probably the best interview I've ever done with anybody, anywhere, I'm not lying. But that's only because we haven't yet spoken to Dr. Cherie Becker. <laughs> That'll be the best interview ever, right? Yeah, it should be. It's going to be very interesting to talk to the good doctor from the University of Bath, England. They're oh, working I love on some. Bath. I've been there. Beautiful. Well, they're doing some great research there. They're they they've started a research project where they're getting the they're getting definitive stories of trans athletes in regard to relations with governing bodies and relations to rules makers and matters of duty of care. In a lot of ways, getting getting the story from the people who are living the story. That's how day you in and day out, sport in space, sport in, sport out. And I think this is important research because it's too often. It's lost in the in the discourse way well, too often. The latest is, did you see The Guardian this week? They put out another study studying elite men, elite women, and average trans women. And once again, the transphobes are just jumping on this saying, oh, of course, it shows that testosterone doesn't go away. And, and they're like, you can't compare these things because you're not studying apples to apples. But not only that, that... There's a lot in that study when you dig into it, because I had an opportunity to read to read a lot of the research of the study. Mm. And there's a lot that there's a lot that shows to what we already know. Yeah. HRT makes a definite difference. It's going I, to I had, I had my youngest son open a jar of pickles yesterday because I couldn't open a jar of pickles. Whereas before I would lift the box, I would open a jar of pickles, I could do all those things. But it's, HRT it's has effect seven years on. now. Oh no, sorry, ten years on HRT. But but Don, not to get political here, but once oh. again, what's rearing its head is the bill. Tulsi Gabbard leaving office and decides to throw one last grenade at trans people. Yeah. Just one yeah. more kick in the stomach. That she wants it to be that only biological people, people who are um uh you know assigned birth. They have to match their, uh, their their identity for school sports. That's so 20th century. <laughs> That's so Texas. Remember the last time that we had this sort of thing. Remember, yeah. remember uh, the situation a couple years ago in Texas? The first line of the bill, the part of the first paragraph of the bill is 
sex, biological sex is determined by a physician. Now, where did that happen? But I know a certain person who goes to a university just out, outside of Atlanta, Georgia, who has some very intimate knowledge in that sort of thing mm -hmm. and how far that can lead and how far that can go. Once well, let me again, just say this. In Hawaii, they say aloha means hello and goodbye. So I'm just going to yeah. say aloha, Tulsi. Goodbye. Well, that's what actually on on my Twitter. That's what a lot of Native Hawaiians are saying. Yeah, about it has Tulsi. no chance of it has no chance of even being uh, put to a vote, as far as I'm concerned. It doesn't. But here's the thing: it's not the idea. Is once again throw something to the wall, see if it sticks. I because know. in something like because in a lot of the country next year, you have this massive legislative agenda in 2021, where. This it where this issue is going to be put on the dockets and committees and legislative floors of a number of states. Never it's mind a, that a, there's this yeah, pandemic. <laughs> it's laying out the red carpet for those legislatures. You're right. Yeah, but but here's the thing: don't we don't we still have like a global pandemic that's killed well, over three hundred thousand Americans? The big news of this week. We have, have three hundred thousand, right? Uh, and on top of that, the vaccine is finally here. People are getting their arm stabbed and. I think that when it's my turn as a professor, I will get uh, sort of early access to this vaccine. I will take it. Um, I'm hoping people uh, from your community, uh, the black community, do get on board because I think that's one of the areas where people are disproportionately affected. And from what I read, there's a lot of disinformation and distrust based on history. I mean, every time there's been a new vaccine, Who's been the guinea pigs? The black community. Yeah, they we don't want that to happen again. We want them to um, survive and live. Well, I want everyone to survive and live. Oh, not everyone. No, I'm okay with, with people not. <laughs> well, but the whole point is, is that folks don't give into the hearsay. Don't listen to fake news. Right. If anything, talk to your medical professionals. Talk to your doctor. Talk to your physician. My physician, I got in touch with about the vaccine. Okay. In fact, she got in touch with all her patients and said, oh, wow. when we get the vaccine, this is what they order. The, the hospital I do a lot of stuff with, they've already set down. This is what our criteria is going to be. This is Fantastic. what the order is going. This is what the order is going to be. This is how it's going to is. Don't call us in advance. We'll get in touch with you. And I was already told you're going to be kind of in the middle of things because, yes, you are. You turn 50 next year, but also you're very you're ridiculously healthy. You're ridiculously healthy. Your charge is above a person half your age. There are gonna, there's gonna be people who are chronically ill and whatnot ahead of you. But you it is gonna come either. to you. And you look like thirty. Oh, well, I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to get like you, Don. But, but Wait, to everybody, it's, yeah. But it's every, <laughs> but, but the point is for everyone, don't, don't go into the fake news about this. If, well, if push comes to shove, talk to your, talk to your physician. Yeah, because oh, they are getting gov. Go to the websites the government put out. Believe well, it or not, the doctors. No, the doctors who are uh, in charge of this. Let's let's give them credit. They made a miracle happen. You know, they were working on this vaccine day one, and um, this is a triumph for science, and it should be recorded as such. I know that Trump's going to take credit for it, and I hope that Biden doesn't either. But speaking of Biden and fake news, did you hear? Um. Joe Biden and Kamala Harris were elected officially. Again. They're, they're <laughs> yeah. official Again. How many, how, and many times, elect. how many times have we heard that over the last month? Well, it has to happen this, one more time. Congress has to actually like give it the rubber stamp. No, what gets me is did you see the footage in Michigan? Did yeah, you yeah. see that? Yeah, scary stuff. The Republican electors, the 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 Republican electors. 
This Darnold is the Republican first... electors. He lost. No, no, but here's the thing. The way it works is, and this is the, and I've seen an electoral college actually meet. All of us have because of TV on Monday. <laughs> True. But before then, I got the I got to see him uh, I got to see him Nebraska electors meet in 1996. Okay. And only the winning electors show up. Simply put, the winning slate of electors, those are the people who show. Yeah, exactly. And that's but nobody told the Republicans that it's against, um, you know, tradition. And apparently it's not against the law. But thank God somebody had the smarts to put a state trooper out there to say, uh, no, no entry. Capitals closed. No, but here's the thing. That's standard procedure for the, for the Electoral College, at least in my experience. The state yeah. troopers are there because – because there is that there is there is that possibility that someone could disrupt it or whatever. So no, it is a very guarded if thing. We just call it what it is. Can we just not, um, you know, tiptoe around this. It's a coup. It's an attempt. Called fascism. That's what it is. I mean, well, I'm just saying they're trying to overthrow the government, basically. Yeah. The, the democratically elected government of the Biden administration. Exactly. Right. We don't want to talk about that. Long, but let's, let's just say this: when the, when the Biden administration comes in, that is good news. For everyone, because of COVID, because of trans rights, because of equal rights, because of everything, except we also need a win in Georgia to overturn the Senate so we can have two Democratic senators from Georgia. And I'm hoping that all of my Republican friends in Georgia are listening. The election is rigged. There's no reason to vote. Stay home. Don't vote. There's no reason. It's all sham. You should just mm-hmm. stay home and not vote. Oh, don't absentee. Don't mail in. That's rigged too. Just stay home. It'll be fine. And, uh, the election's fake news. Fake news. So how about some real news? Yes. Let's go to Bath, England. Set the coordinates <laughs> for the transporter room. Coordinates are set. Our guest. Ener- coordinates are set. Energizing. Siri welcome. Becker, Welcome. Welcome. You're in the transporter room. Hi. I, it's such a pleasure to be here. Thank you, Carly. Thank you, Dawn. I'm so glad to have you connected with us. I must say, it has been about 20 years, maybe more. Yeah, probably 25. But I've never been to Rome. But I feel like I've been to Rome because I've been to Bath. Same here. I haven't been to Rome either. <laughs> Bath but it's absolutely a beautiful has city. Roman, Roman architecture and beautiful buildings in can you tell us a little bit how come that is? Do you know, have any idea why? <laughs> well, I'm I'm pretty new to Bath myself, um, so I've only been here for about two years. But I suppose it is because of the uh, the Roman baths influence, and that's where the name of Bath probably would have come from. <laughs> there you go. A little history lesson there from our Dr. Cherie Baker. Yeah. Becker. <laughs> Cherie's fine. Thank you. Cherie. We'll call you Cherie. Now, yeah. before we get into the research you've been doing, there's a controversy here in the United States in which some bozo which is our word for a clown, mm-hmm. um, suggested that the president-elect's wife, the first lady-to-be, should drop her um, title of doctor because she's a doctor of education, and it seems pretentious. But I don't agree with that. I was wondering if you had an opinion on that little issue, since you also have a degree. 
I do. And I do have, uh, yeah, doctor in front of my name. And actually, I put that into my Twitter um, name as well, Dr. Sheree Becker. I am on Twitter, um, at Sheree Becker, um, because it, it's really important. You know, the, the where doctor comes from, I think scholars were the original doctors and, and MDs were only later called doctors. And, you know, particularly for women and people of, not, of other genders, it's really, really important when we do have these accolades. Um, in our names to use those. I mean, that signifies a kind of um, prestige and, and, you know, the work that we've done. Um, and, and I think it's really important to uh, to recognize that in the work that we do. So, yeah, I'm, I'm all for it, Dr. Jill Biden. <laughs> How beautiful. That's yeah, wonderful. Yeah. Um, on Twitter, there's a trend right now for people to add, women to add our um, titles at the end of our names. I added mm -hmm. mine. Mine is BFA. And as I joked on Twitter, um, that stands for Bachelor of Fine Arts, but we used to also say it stands for bad, I'll say friggin' attitude. Oh, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. <laughs> mm, yeah, these things are really important. They really matter to hold space, um, you know, for that. Well, one thing, speaking of holding space, let's talk about the research you're doing. What are you, look what are you looking to do? What are you looking to accomplish? Yeah, thank you. And um, it's such an honor to be here to speak about this today. You know, before we came on today, I was thinking about how to explain what I do and, and just a little bit of my background. So I'm South African and I went over to Australia to go and do my PhD research there. That's where I did my doctoral research. And my research at that point was in um, sports policy, and I was interested in injury prevention policy and safeguarding policy as well. So, you know, the protection um, against um, what we call um, intentional injuries and unintentional injuries, so physical injuries, as well as things like harassment and abuse and discrimination. And um, in that work that I did in my PhD research um, in Australia, talking about earlier what you were saying about the media and, and you know, throwing things at a wall and what sticks, <laughs> that's actually really relevant because what I found is that lots of sports organizations, we think that they are strategically driven in terms of the, the um, policies that they develop around injury and injury prevention and safeguarding. But actually what I found in, in talking to sports organizations is that really very often they're driven by what is being spoken about in the media. So, for example, we've seen, you know, policies developed around concussion or around um, catastrophic spinal injuries and so on. So they're really driven by those conversations that are happening in the media. And I think, you know, coming to the topics that we'll talk about today in terms of what I like to call exclusionary policies, because I don't think these policies are inclusion policies, as people often like to say, um, are really driven by what we're seeing here in the UK, um, particularly but also um, in the US around, uh, you know, real transphobia and the fear of uh, trans people taking over um, sports in some, in some or other way. So with my research, what I'd like to do is really change that conversation and, and change how we speak about this to move away from this um, regulatory science, testosterone-driven conversation that's really... Uh, you know, based in a lot of fears about testosterone as being the elixir of performance somehow. And I'd like to move that away into speaking more about sports organizations' duty of care. And so for me, 
I'm a qualitative researcher. That's what I do. I speak to people. I think people's lived experiences and stories, particularly in spaces like sport, are incredibly important. I mean, sport isn't sport without our athletes. Um, and so I thought, you know, how can I do this differently? Who should we be centering in these conversations? Who are the people who are the most affected? And how can we maybe take that to this space and think about a different way of doing gender inclusive sport that doesn't um, include these exclusionary type policies. So yeah, I've just been talking to people who I think whose voices are very important and who are marginalized far too often. It's not that people are voiceless. I think you have always been speaking out, um, but that, that that is not being heard by sports organizations. So in a nutshell, that I'll start with that. Yeah. Was there something else you were thinking about doing when you were a little girl? Wow, good question. Do you know what? <laughs> I've always wanted the doctor in front of my name. I don't know why. <laughs> Did you ever think about going to medical school? Is that ever an option? No, it was never about being a medical doctor. That's the thing. <laughs> so I think, you know, I've always been curious. I love reading. I read so much. All of my friends will say, you know, I make space to read every day. And um, I've always been interested in sports. So I knew I wanted to do something in sport. And I actually went to study human movement science at university. And funnily enough, I only recently realized that I studied that in a faculty of humanities, whereas most kind of sports science degrees are in medical um, in medical faculties. So I do have this very social science kind of background that's quite different from a lot of people in the sports science spaces. Yeah. Well, hey, I'm glad that you went ahead and just went after that do went after that doctorate, and now you've got that title in front of your name. But there was also, <laughs> but as far as this research. You are influenced actually by a fellow South African, which is kind of, in a sense, inspiring some of this re research. Um, you had said mm -hmm. that you, uh, at one time, you had lived near Castor Semenya. Mm -hmm. how, has, how has she influenced what you're trying to do now? Mm, wow, that's a great question. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't think Castor would even know this. I mean, we don't know each other personally, and I would never claim that. But I did at one point live two doors down from Castor Semenya um, when we were both, she was training at the University of Pretoria, and I was, wow. um, I was studying there. <laughs> yeah. So I think, you know, my influence comes from knowing Castor as a person, seeing her around, seeing her training every day really hard, um, you know, that that kind of influence that, you know, is almost rehumanizing. I think so many people now talk about the Castor Semenya issue, just like people talk about the trans issue, which is such a dehumanizing kind of phrase, I think. So for me, it's always been... I've been interested in, in these questions and how people talk about this and, and what we can do differently that holds people, I think, at the center um, of all of that. So, yeah, it's a small world. <laughs> now, what kind of responses have you been getting in some of the research and some of the interviews? And full disclosure, I'm one of the people that participated in one of these interviews. <laughs> and yes. no, I found it very interesting that people that especially academic that academics are actually putting in earlier this year, a group of 84 academics around the world signed a drafted and signed a declaration against what world rugby is trying to do for you. What are you, what at first, what are you seeing in some of these interviews? What are some of the broad themes you're seeing? And secondly, from your standpoint, what is your gut reaction to things such as what world rugby has tried to do and the research has come from it? Mm, yeah, 
Yeah, yeah. So, Carly, it was a, a real honor to speak with you earlier this week. And, and I will say, you know, these interviews are confidential interviews, but I am finding that lots of athletes are saying, I want to speak on the record. I want my voice to be, you know, my, my views to be heard here. Um, that's really one of the, the key things that I'm finding. Um, you know, my primary area of research is in safeguarding. And where this all, where a lot of this started for me was I was, I was really concerned that sports organizations like World Rugby have um, often have a safeguarding policy within their organization. And this is a safeguarding policy that, you know, generally um, is around safeguarding against sexual um, harassment and abuse, but also other kinds of, of physical and psychological harassment and abuse and discrimination. But then there are also these exclusionary policies that sit in a different side, a different part of their organization that I think actually create a hostile environment and create environments in which you know structural discrimination exists and create spaces for more harassment and abuse towards um, trans athletes and non-binary people and so on. So when I start when I set out this project, I was thinking about how can we talk about sports organizations and their duty of care and change that conversation. And the things that I'm starting to find is that you know, it seems to me that sports organizations are terrified of and led by their worries around legal liability. And so I think we need to start to show them and to move the conversation away from notions of fragile, often white, mostly cis women's bodies. Um, and oh, those poor women. Oh, yes. it's so Fragile they need to be protected from men. That's right. Oh, and maybe we should marry them off so they don't have to worry about competing in sports. Like you go back right. to the kitchen. Their ovaries protect, you know, yes. get back into the stuff. bed or the kitchen, one or the other. There we go. Exactly. So these are steeped in misogynist notions about women and vulnerability. And I think we need to move away from that, away from the scientism that we often see in this space um, and towards their duty of care in terms of safeguarding physically, psychologically and material, all of the materially, all of their athletes, including trans women, including women with high testosterone, such as Casta Semenya, including non-binary folk. So for me, and what I'm hearing here is that mental health in particular is a massive issue in sport, not just for, for the people that I've just mentioned, but it is a, a big issue that we're seeing in sport. And I'm, I'm starting to, to ask, where is their duty of care in terms of protecting people's mental and physical health in terms of harassment and abuse that they might be finding? So I think, um, you know, their concerns about injury in the women's game is not borne out in the data. Um, yes, there are injury concerns in the women's game, but they are not from the spectre that they seem to be putting up at the moment. And I think the growing specific real need in terms of duty of care, the duty of care issue in sport is around harassment and abuse. So not only individual like sexual harassment and abuse, but also organizational discrimination, which that's what I think these policies are. I think they're a form of organizational violence towards trans women and mental health. Um, and so exclusionary policies kind of add to that problem rather than mitigating um, that problem. And so this is what I'm hearing from people at the center of this is, you know, that we need to change the conversation, talk about human rights um, and talk about, you know, how do we get more people into sport rather than excluding people? Yeah. Well, the UN Charter says sport is a human right. Mm -hmm. We who are trans have long believed and understood that transphobia is misogyny 
And mm -hmm. I think that most cisgender allies like yourself agree with this, but there are a small but very loud contingent of cisgender women, many of them lesbians, who see us as men in dresses or men pretending to be women or as a threat, as an actual threat. Um, mm. Part of that, I think, is because they don't understand the whole transition process. Um, it's true that not every transgender woman undergoes uh, reassignment surgery or, or um, confirmation surgery. But at the same time, I, I think any medical doctor will tell you, not only do the hormones that um, most trans women take affect our strength and our ability to open jars of pickles, mm. but it also <laughs> affects the um, ability to perform in a um, sexual uh, arrangement. So I, I think that threat is, is mitigated. And um, there's never been, at least in the U.S., never been one incident of a trans woman using the laws that allow us to have equal accommodations to harass or be a predator mm -hmm. to a cisgender woman or a girl. Never a conviction, never a, um, a case in which someone was convicted. Have there been accusations? Oh, yes, there have been. Um, I think there was one case in Canada that actually did lead to some kind of um, criminal case. But I, I can imagine in England, the, the biggest problem I see is that the media in the mm -hmm. UK is sort of like the flip-flop of what we have here in the US, whereas most media stories are positive and praiseworthy and encouraging and, and holding up trans women and trans men to be um, models of, of uh, emulation. Mm. In the UK, it's like we're victimized and we're um, uh, criminalized and we're villainized and we're seen as predators and um, deranged and mentally um, uh, bankrupt, morally mm. bankrupt. There's so much animus. And I was going to ask you a different question, but based on where we were going with the conversation, I was just curious as to um, how much influence do you think the media has in the mm. UK on popular opinions regarding our community? Great question. And I would say a massive influence. You know, I'm new to the UK and it really, I was saying to Carly the other day, it really shocks me how hostile the media is here and how committed they are to this both sidesing of some sort of debate as if women's rights and trans rights and human rights are all in, in opposition to one another. And, and that's fundamentally not the case, um, you know? So I think the media plays a huge role. And then we, we often hear this, this argument around fairness, right? Yeah. This is a massive word. We just want to be fair. We just want to be fair. To whom? We want things to be fair. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I think we do need to talk about this word, word fairness and how I think it's often used. You know, you know that argument that we sometimes hear about, oh, that's reverse racism against white people. We can't do that. I think it's it's kind of used in a, a similar way, but I think what people don't recognize and don't realize is that cis women in sport aren't structurally disadvantaged in the way that trans women in sport are. And so we need to talk about things like trans misogyny and, um, you know, misogynoir as well in, in the ways that these are systemically uphold, up, you know, upheld by um, sports organizations through their policies. And so, you know, putting, putting this fairness, this fairness argument on the table, I think really, um, you know, just... It just doesn't hold up for me when we're talking about people's fundamental um, human rights um, in this space. It's it's not, 
it's not the same thing <laughs> at all. And I'm just going to follow up with a question. I once participated in a study in Boston, not far from where I live in the United States. And it was very interesting in terms of having me really examine, you know, I think trans people are the most introspective people on the planet to begin with, but it was very much about um, dealing with um, societal influences and reactions, both in my family life and my personal life. And um, I'd like you to just tell us all about Carly. No, I know you can't. Uh, <laughs> I, knew you, I knew you can't open the file. I know you can't open the file. It's very private. But would you yeah. talk a little bit about how that works? Because I don't think people really understand, except for like Carly and me who have actually experienced what it's like to be part of a research study, what it is that you do and why um, the privacy issue is so important. Oh, good question. So I think, you know, there are conversations that we can have in those private spaces that, you know, are more wide ranging that we wouldn't necessarily have in, in this format, for example. Um, and I think, uh, you know, what I what I do is I listen to different people's stories and I synthesize the kind of the dots or the patterns or the connections that I'm hearing across different people's stories and different people's lived experiences. And I think we can start to tease out and, and learn from and think through what we're hearing, um, you know, from different groups of people. So, you know, it's not the same as, as anecdotes. And often people will say, oh, but that's just anecdote, right? We need the data. We need, the, you know, studies with thousands of points of data in them to be able to, you know, say something definitive. But for me, what it's really about is about going in depth into one person's story because every life matters and every person's story matters. But then we can also pick out the patterns and the themes that kind of emerge across those stories. And so something that I learned from Carly, but that I'm also hearing from other people um, is the fact that, you know, for, first of all, gender inclusive sport is already happening and has been happening, you know, not just for out trans people, but I mean, it, it, it's always been the case. And now we're, we're bringing in these new policies for some unknown reason. But the second thing as well is this um, rehumanization, I think, and, and Carly was saying to me, you know, if, if, I, if people just meet me and we can have a conversation and I can explain to them everything that I have to go through to be able to compete, um, all the barriers that I've had to overcome and the fact that I'm just wanting to live my life and enjoy and sport is part of that enjoyment of actually just living my life. Um, that's a really powerful, compelling story. And that's not only Carly's story, though, of course, Carly, that's, you know, extremely important. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> but that's mm -hmm. what I want to get to. I, I want to stop talking about women as being just being reduced to testosterone. I, you know, we need to move beyond that and to hear people's stories. So Carly, does that resonate with um, what you told me? <laughs> that's exactly what that's exactly what I said. That's one part mm -hmm. I have no and I and I'm one of those people who said, no, I want my voice to be out there because mm -hmm. I think like we had discussed, say, the, like we're talking about the British media. It's all, this is the way the British media works. It's always, and it doesn't matter what the show is. It could be Newsnight. It could be Question Time. It could be Good Morning Britain. It's always, almost always the same thing. It is a person from, it, it, it's this quote unquote debate where it's a cis person who is allied with trans people who knows the law and knows regulations and know all these things against people like a Sharon Davies or, mm. uh, or, you know, just people from like fair play and women's place who don't know who all they know is they just don't like trans people. And with that in mind, how, or 
oftentimes when you're hearing discourse about the spore science, there's one name that comes up and he is a fellow South African. Yes, he is. Ross Tucker. <laughs> Let, let's talk about that. As a, I mean, as a South African, well, we're still not responsible for us just because. True, we're the same but, but no, but I want to know in in South Africa, does this guy get any traction in South Africa? Because it sounds like it sounds like he do, actually sounds like he doesn't. Where I mean, is Ross Tucker even honored in his own country? Do people look at him as a voice that you go to? Look, Ross Tucker has been a voice for sports science in South Africa for many, many years. But I think, you know, again, thinking about the voices that we should be listening to, women's sports organizations in South Africa are all over inclusion. I mean, South Africa has a very, very strong human rights focused constitution, um, you know, after 1994 and, and so on. And women's sports organizations and organizations like Athletics South Africa and so on have been fighting and are very much for inclusion. And so those are the narratives. You know, we have a very strong um, uh, also women's rights focus in South Africa as well. So I think those narratives are the important ones that we should be li listening to and are the important ones that have more, they might not be as vocal, um, but they have more, um, they hold more space in South Africa, I think. The thing about Mr. Tucker, and I don't think he has an honorific as far as I know, um, maybe he does, I don't care, um, <laughs> is that he wants to engage on Twitter. And I don't know if you've seen that he invites conversation on this issue because for some reason he thinks that our existence should be debated. And I'm not here for that. I'm not here to, to get someone to debate my existence or my rights. This is not a debate. I am. I am. And I may not be an athlete like Carly, uh, but I live and I breathe and I uh, own my identity. And as far as I'm concerned, he has every right to spew anything he wants to, but I wish he would stop with the debate. Mm. I think that's such a powerful request, Dawn. Mm. Yeah, we need to recognize that the harms as well, again, going back to harassment and abuse that that kind of debate creates. And uh, again, coming back to my research, this is why I wanted to, um, you know, speak to people um, who should be centered in this conversation. Mm. Now, now, doctor, are you looking for, are you still looking for more subjects? And if so, how can people contact you to be a part of this? Oh, that's an awesome question. I am, I'm looking to speak to, you know, as many people as who will speak to me, um, you know, if people are comfortable to, I'm always looking to speak to participants. Um, so do you have show notes? Could I provide a, a link that people can... Um, that, that they what can we'll do, how about we do this? Let's give everybody a little bit of time to grab a pencil or a pen or to get their phone out to type in a contact information. And on the other side of this break, We'll get the information so you can get in touch with the doctor and with this research. And I'll tell you all about Mary Wiseman, Tilly on Star Trek Discovery, when the transporter room returns. We're back with the transporter room and Dr. Cherie Becker from the University of Bath in England doing some groundbreaking research on the real about trans athletes, not the fake news. And we have, and if 
you're interested in being a part of it, here's how you can be a part of it. Doctor, how could how could someone give their testimony, give their story if they choose to, to help this research along? Yeah, wonderful. So the best way to contact me would be at my email address. So that would be s.becker, B-E-K-K-E-R, um, at bath.ac.uk. Or you can find me on Twitter at Cherie Becker. That's a good thing. And that's going to be a, a, this is some great research. If you're a trans athlete, I encourage you to be a part of it. Thank you. I really appreciate that shout out. I'd like to ask you one more question about your heritage. So I've never been to the continent. I've never been to South Africa. And I was just wondering, for those of us who always, uh, you know, we've, we've heard the stories, we've learned the history. I know you can't summarize an entire country in just a few minutes, but give me a sense of what it was like growing up in South Africa, knowing uh, that the world looked at South Africa and South Africans uh, in certain ways. I was wondering what that was like growing up. Mm, great question. I have two parts of this um, answer. The first part is, you know, it is interesting growing up in a place where you always have to grapple with the very recent past and, and things like, you know, Truth and Reconciliation Commission and so on, you know, really being honest about that past. And I think, you know, that's what I'm finding now, having lived in, in Australia and here in the UK, um, you know, that have their own colonial histories to to grapple with. I think we, we're not having those open and honest, honest conversations in these countries. And I think that that has been really good for South Africa, um, you know, to, to have to do that. And so we're, we, I think we are better at having open conversations about things like racial injustice as well in places like South Africa, which is of course still ongoing in many ways. Um, the other part of that is I was born in South Africa, but for most of my life, I lived in Botswana, actually, which has a very different kind of colonial past, um, very much tied to yes. the UK, of course. Um, so that's really the history that I'm much more familiar with in many ways, um, having lived in Botswana. And, and, and tell us, because I had a, this is something you'll, you'll laugh at. In high school, my history teacher had us memorize all the countries of Africa. We had to know all of them. And we had a little song we sang to remember all the names of the countries. Of course, since then, which was a thousand years ago, some of the countries' names have changed. So I could not, you know, mm -hmm. possibly, uh, and you don't want to hear me sing anyway. But um, <laughs> tell us a little bit about, um, uh, obviously, it's Southern Hemisphere, so the seasons mm -hmm. are different. Um, what What is it like? Is it arid? Is mm -hmm. it um, uh, tropical? I mean, what, what, what's, what was your um, environment like? Mm, good question. And, you know, something that I feel like I failed to mention, of course, is that my experience as a white South African is very different to, you know, black South Africans experiences. So I just want to recognize no, it's that important um, very can't clearly. See you and it may not yeah, be that's well. right. So I'm a um, white woman. You and I are South both Africa. white. Yeah. Carly is black. Um, or as mm -hmm. I, I say, uh, we're mel um, melanin challenged. <laughs> yeah, but, but remember, but, but just remember one thing. South Africa belongs to all who live in it, white mm -hmm. and black. First line of the Freedom Charter. That's right. Absolutely. First exactly. First. Yeah. So, you know, let me speak about Bots Botswana because I think that that's what you were asking about. Yes. I mean, Botswana is, is very much a semi-desert and, and that's kind of where I, I grew up. I mean, the whole country is very um, arid, um, but it's a, it's a kind of beauty that I miss so much. And I do miss like, you know, Botswana is famous for its elephants. There are so many elephants in Botswana that just kind of 
I don't want to add to um, perceptions, but I mean, there are lots of, um, you know, there's lots of wildlife and I think that that's what it's famous for um, in many ways. So you ways. have a pet elephant growing up? <laughs> in my backyard, yes. <laughs> and a lion in the front. And a lion too, of course. Yes, of Simba, yes. And uh, I had a dinosaur. I had a dinosaur I wrote Oh, for of yes. course. Yeah. <laughs> well, this has been mm. an absolute pleasure. Carly? I am so grateful to you for participating in this research, and I'm so grateful to you, Dr. Becker, for joining us to talk about it and illuminating us both on on the science and also um, your homeland. Thank you so much. And your adopted country too. (laughs) Yes, that's right. And thank you so much. It's such an honor and a privilege for me to have been here to speak with you today. And and as I said to Carly, if I can help in some small way through my research, um, then that is really meaningful to me. So please let me know if I can ever help you with anything else in the future as well. I'm here to be a voice and to assist in things. So please let me know. Well, like I told you, we're going to, I am going to hold you to that. I'm going to hold you to that. And I'm also going to, and who knows, maybe we'll be, maybe we'll be planning that. I'll plan my next trip to South Africa around the time you're there. Yeah. Because I've been to the, I've been to the country, been to the country once because I have relatives there and loved it and would love to make, Oh, it's been about 20 years since I've been there. I would love to make a return trip. Oh, tell me, I'll be there. It is a a beautiful country. I was there. The last time I was there was in 1998. And it was like four years after the fall of apartheid. And Mm. what you saw was an optimism. At that, in the 1990s, you saw the optimism. Now, granted, some of that optimism has been strained because of a lot of situations politically Mm -hmm. there. But you saw that spirit and that optimism that people said we and, and it was across the whole width and breadth of the populace mm-hmm. that we're moving forward and we're moving on and it would be great to see that there and also I, got to see, I got to see one of my favorite places while i was there and i would love to go back what's that and love to go back to uh it's a little place in midrand called kailami i'm a oh, huge formula I'm a huge, I'm a huge formula one fan she loves and racing. i love and that's one of the epic places i always want to go to and i remember being there and thinking i was walking around the track and it was still the old track at the time mm-hmm. they hadn't done all the refurbishment yet mm-hmm. but i was thinking you know and i was thinking walking through and it was surreal thinking that you know what just five just 10 years ago i wouldn't even be allowed here and it was great to say now i'm allowed now i'm allowed here now i'm allowed here now we can race here again because for a long time there there used to be a formula one south african grand prix from 1984 from 1985 to 1995 there was not one because f1 left because of apartheid Mm -hmm. and it was great to see world racing coming back in fact i was there to see and I was also there to see the World Endurance Championship return to Kailami that year. And it was great mm-hmm. to see it again. So, oh, no, I would love to go back. And this time I want to drive the thing. Yes, <laughs> fabulous. But that's such a good point. Again, you know, sport can change the world. And, and you know, sport plays such a big role in this hope and optimism and new ways of being and thinking and, and living in this world as well. So, yeah. It's a great way to end it. All right, yes. setting coordinates for Bath. Thank you. Take Thank care. You. Thank you, Doctor. Stay in touch. That was awesome. What a great idea. I'm glad she participated. I wouldn't think she would normally I'll you, want to a, do that. I'll tell you, it was it was supposed to be a one hour interview. We ended yeah. up going two and a half. Wow. That's okay. how I mean uh, it was an excellent interview. It was a, I mean, that's something I'd like to see more people jump on. 
Yeah, I agree. Well, hopefully they will. Probably Thanks good us. questions. Let's let's see what happens. So, what are you binging these days? What am I binging right now? Actually, I'm all in Discovery. Ah, I've I've caught up to Discovery big time, and well, all now I can the universe with uh, Georgiou, and I will tell you, I've seen the episode. There's a really big callback coming from the original series because everyone wants to know who is Carl. Who is Carl? How is yes. Carl related to this whole Star Trek universe? And it's going to blow your mind when you see it. And on top of that, Tilly, or Killy, as they're, she called in the uh, alternate universe, in the Murray universe, uh, spoke to me on Zoom this week. And I just, uh, we talked about working with um, Michelle Yeoh, with Anthony Rapp, Wilson Cruz, Blue Del Barrio. We talked about uh, Doug Jones. We talked about um, her uh, amazing husband who is now part of the cast and how he got on the show. And here's a little uh, excerpt of my interview. You get to kick Sonequa in the face. (laughs) What was that like? Um, It's crazy. I was excited to like... I was excited to play a badass, you know, it was, it was so fun when I saw it was coming down the pike and also that I got to do so much in the mirror universe. I was so excited. I also know that like Killy is somebody who's very important to a lot of fans, especially like my curvy women out there who like, we're here. Yes, we are. Who like to see another full figured fat curvy, chunky woman get to embrace our, embrace our size. I always say exactly get to wear powerful and use that size to command authority um so i was also just very excited for the fans first of all because there's more options for cosplay now because she changed her hair right Uh, and second of all just to like kind of get to dig into it you don't always get to see a woman like me in that sort of position you know like psychotic (laughs) murderer (laughs) is kelly different in this um current season three than she was in season um i think one or two i can't remember which one right season one. Oh right well it's interesting like because in season one i only really got to play kelly as tilly projected her right it was like it was a pretend kelly right right and so it's like well how much of that has to do with the real Killy, like how much was she able to tap into and and how much is different? And so I just, I tried to, I mean, I was definitely informed by that section of season one, but I also tried to build her from scratch a little bit based on the circumstances of this like fascist world. They all live in like surrounded by genocidal maniacs. Um, uh, and I, I don't know, I kind of tried to build something a, a little different. It was, it was tricky, but it was a really, really fun and satisfying challenge. All I can say is one of my favorite characters and you got to talk to them. Oh, she's wow. great. She, she is definitely a fan favorite. And here's something I'm, I, I want to just, a little spoiler, not about Star Trek, but about my interview. People have been coming after her and she wanted Hi. people to know she wanted people to know she really appreciates all those who stood up for her. And she got a very emotional talking about what it's like having people criticize her because of something like her size and her curves. And she is just a beautiful woman. And I am angry for her that she has to do that, that she has to defend herself. And she wanted fans to know she sees those comments. She sees what people are saying about her. And it hurts. 
and people have to stop. I agree. First off, who in the world would come at who come at her? She's gorgeous. I'll tell you who. She men. Is, men. She is gorgeous. Then, then I'd say two words for all those guys. Lens crafters. She's gorgeous. Absolutely. She is absolutely gorgeous. She is first off. If that's uh, if she's plus size, that's new. That's news. She's. I mean, her and her and I are probably really close to about the same dress size. And I under we are we are actually pretty dang close. I'm not as skinny as you think, especially. Um, I've seen you in person. You're you're you're, you're one half of me. Okay. <laughs> yeah, but, you but are one half thing about, No, but I'm but, twice no, but, you are. Yeah, but here's the thing that let's step in. Let's step into that. Is Kamora Harrington say let's step into that for a second? Okay. Because I've been I've been criticized for my body being too big, too this, too that. You're too tall. You're too or my favorite male bodied. Whatever the hell that means. I heard that too. Well, and, she's five foot six and a quarter inches. Okay. Yeah, tall number one. Tall one. One. She's tall. Average American woman's about five four. She's in the north end of that. But to me, anybody who thinks she's not gorgeous needs your eyes examined. Yeah. And I think that if you're going to judge someone based on their weight, then you have a lot of other things you should be considering instead of that. Well, my the, it blows thing. my mind that this is what people are investing their time in. No, but no, but but you have but you understand it's it's called patriarchy at one level. Yes. But at, a, yes. uh, but at another and women level, can be women can be part of that too by supporting it. Well, but you see, there's a whole industry, unfortunately, that buys into that. But as far yeah. as what she does on that show, yeah, she makes that show is already good. But then again, you know, the fan, you know, there are certain segments of of the fandom, if you want to use that term, who've always had, they've always had, a lot of people have had something to say that was ill about Discovery in some ways because, and the and the modern Star Trek because. It is because it does say say things. It does give a message. It is open. It is diverse. And to the and once again, it shows that those people who are complaining about this really have no idea what Star Trek was ever about. Exactly. Exactly. It's no idea. Infinite diversity and infinite combinations. That's what it comes down to. Star Trek Discovery is actually fulfilling, in my view, Roddenberry's vision. And you know what someone said to me on Twitter? They said, "Well." I wish there was a Star Trek that didn't count how many LGBT characters they had. I'm like, you know what? Five LGBT characters out of seven, or, sorry, five LGBT characters out of 27 is just a little bit more than the percentage of actual LGBT people in the world. So let's get off of that quota business. It's not a quota. It's just realizing that it's not zero LGBT people. That's what it used to be in Star Trek, zero. And now we're actually represented just like you know, people of color should be represented. People who are Asian should be represented. Um, not the whole world is not white or male. Yeah, and and you know who would be the first to say that if he was here to say it, Mr. Roddenberry himself. Roddenberry himself. Yeah, I agree. Well, Carly, this has been an adventure. Um, I enjoyed this very much. Next week, we bring you Verity Smith, another British, English, UK guest. We're just going to have to move over there, I guess, Carly, to make our lives easier, won't we? Well, Verity is someone I really want to hear from. He's a trans man, has a lot of opinions about the world rugby decision, and on top of that, he is a triumphant man who has overcome personal disability to 
move on with his life. And we're going to talk about that and so much more coming up next week on the Transporter Room. Also, make sure tomorrow you listen to LGBT in the Ring with our friend Brian Bell. And Carly and I will be back on the Outsports platform next Wednesday. Live long and prosper, Carly. Terra firma. Terra firma. (laughs) 